completely unbalanced. Come on now, Brian. That's pretty awful. Oh my god. <laughs> He's unbalanced. This guy is a lunatic. These men lived in a much different time. God, we got some kooky people back in this time. It's not obvious that we are professionals. You're not paying attention. We know what we're doing. <laughs> but I'm serious. Can we start already? Okay. Welcome to Unbalanced Views of History, a mostly American history podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bradyhoff. I studied history in grad school and taught it for a few years. In each episode, I read an amazing story from history to my friend, Mike Ajaritas, who is, in every sense of the words, completely ignorant. How you doing, buddy? Totally, totally ignorant. I have no idea what's going on, but I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm doing very well. I should say I'm doing well. Since you're a professor, I should say I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm well. I am um, just got back from Maryland, as you well know, where we, we saw each other, which is cool. What's your uh, what's your sunshine this week, buddy? Well, sunshine just ended since I got back from vacation. So that's... So now you're into clouds and rain. It's now the sunset and clouds and rain, and that's it. So, but I'm back and happy to be back and looking forward to another great podcast with my good buddy speaking of we just uh we just went over our first hundred downloads which is uh not so shabby since we haven't really uh advertised or promoted or done anything yet so i'm pretty excited about that yeah i uh i'm interested too because i was pretty pumped about our our last the part one and uh very interested to continue that on we had a little bit of a break so i've been a little bit you know a little bit excited i think this is our best story yet you know, obviously we're getting better, and this is the best one for sure. I, I agree. And I was going to say, my, my sunshine this week is that we're finally pending on Apple Podcasts, so that should happen soon. There's another, there's, there, is, there is some more sunshine, up here at least, in the Baltimore Orioles. As the they Baltimore have Orioles. Been... Hold on, let, may I, please? Yes, go right ahead. I think that I didn't. I haven't looked this up. I meant to actually look up the, the year, but I think this is the first time since maybe 2014 that the Orioles, at 100 games into the season, still had a winning record. Uh, yeah, for sure. I think that's. I think you're probably safe there. And yeah. I don't know. This is very interesting. I was thinking about putting some money, maybe 50 bucks, on them to win the World Series at like 30,000 to one. Sure. Um, if you're looking for a real dark horse to sneak in the wild card and then, you know, they're the magic is back. I think the magic is back. My question is, and, and I don't want to take up too much time, but are they going to put the brakes on the trading of everyone? Or are they going to look for a trade for this postseason? Or are they going to still look for prospects? I guess that's the big question that we've got. It really is. Yeah, there. I've been uh, personally, I have been on Trey Mancini watch. Uh, and Anthony Santander watch. I, I hate to see either of those guys go, but but those are the two guys who I think are, you know, certainly are potential, you know, seem like the best potential trade bait. Yep. Um, I, that is I, a hard decision. Yeah, it is a hard decision. Have- definitely, definitely, definitely. We're just talking about football. I'm waiting for football to start. Yeah, I have uh, the last few years I have been bored with baseball by this time uh, because the Orioles are terrible. <laughs> I can't believe that I've already finished my uh, – my first beer, um, and it's uh, it's not even two o'clock, but uh, you know I've got I found a new beer, uh, so I'm trying. It's uh, Brewdog, brewed in Ohio. Um, 
so, I think uh, I've seen that. I, new, uh, new to I me, just, anyway. I'm almost 90% sure I've seen that here. I believe it. Ohio's a lot closer to Maryland yeah. than Florida. I haven't had it, but I've seen so, it. You know, that would make sense. All right, fill me in. Give me a, let's do a recap of the last episode briefly, if you could. If that... I will do okay. no such thing. Never mind. Let's move forward. Move on. <laughs> okay. So, no, no. I, I'll, I'll do a very brief recap. Okay. So, Mike, today we're going to finish our story about, as you called them, Little F and Annie Rob, Little Ephraim and Anaconda Robin, Robin John, who were the two slave trading epic princes from Old Calabar. They were captured and enslaved, sent to Dominica. Then they were tricked and kidnapped and sold in Virginia. And when our story left off, after about six or so years enslaved in the Americas, they escaped aboard the ship Greyhound, which was captained by a guy named Terence O'Neill. That's when the, don't mean to cut you off, but that's when we discussed the ever-growing cases of uh, African-American pirates. Is that when we, when we started discussing that? We did. We talked about, when we talked about slave rebellions, uh, like aboard ships and stuff. Yes. Who then became pirate ships? Who then became pirate ships? Well, they didn't become pirate ships. They became pirates. Because they, they commandeered. They, they, they like took over them. Yes, they, they became did, pirates. They did not transition into pirate ships. Ship. <laughs> um, so they, one of them, the, the head guy cut one leg off. Caught a parrot. Leg leg there. And he put a patch over his eye and, and, and a parrot. And, 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 and absolutely. They were on their yeah, way it became Caribbean a stereotype. For the Black Pearl. That was the, origi- that was the origins of the Black Pearl. Which then became a, a great movie as Pirates of the Caribbean. It became a movie, which which was true, by the way, because the Black Pearl in the movie was a black lady at the end of the at the end of the movie. She was the Black Pearl. Okay. And I, I think there's a I, th- I think there's a connection here. I think there's a connection here. I think if we trace it all back, there's a connection between the commandeering of the slave ships and the Pirates of the Caribbean and the Black Pearl. That's all I'm saying. I am going to be the Democratic Party and tell you, I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, hear I you. see you. I hear you. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. So the Robin Johns escaped. They get aboard the Greyhound, and Captain Terrence O'Neill sailed across the Atlantic. He sailed up the Bristol Channel past Cardiff in Wales, as you might know, and then up the River Avon to dock at a place called The Key in the city of Bristol. We mentioned in the last episode that Ancon and Little Ref. Uh, little Annie Rob and Little F. I'm, it's hard for me to call them that. Annie Rob and Little F were moved from the the Greyhound to a ship called the Brickdale. The Brickdale was owned by Henry Lippincott, and the Robin Johns thought that this would that this was the ship that was going to finally return them to Old Calabar as they'd been promised. So they were shocked and horrified when men showed up on the Brickdale and put them in irons. Little Ephraim wrote that quote. With tears and trembling, we began to pray to God to help us in this deplorable condition, end quote. But even in this miserable state, the Robin Johns had a bit of luck on their side because they had arrived in the city of Bristol. And that is where we left off last time. Bristol, Connecticut? Bristol in the UK. Okay. Okay. Just just making sure we're all on the same page. We are in the UK. same, Same country. So they docked at a place called the Key. Or the quay is the way it's spelled, but it's pronounced the key. And the key was probably England's busiest and most bustling kind of center of commerce in the 18th century. It was about a mile long. It was surrounded by coffee shops, merchant counting houses, warehouses, 
refineries, shops, and taverns. Uh, the streets teemed with people, quote, all in a hurry, running up and down with cloudy looks and busy faces, loading, carrying, and unloading goods and merchandises of all sorts, end quote. Like a bustling little port. A very bustling little, yeah, little port. Um, and again, it's a port up on the river. So I want to be clear, you know, we're not like on the coast. Mm-hmm. We're up, up the river. Okay. It was reported at the time that even the clergy in Bristol, quote, talk of nothing but trade and how to turn a penny, end quote. Now, I find that funny because, like, that seems exactly like the clergy today in America. However, back then, it was notable. They're like, wow, even the clergy talk about nothing but making money. <laughs> Sorry to digress. Did you hear about the uh, the preacher who, the other day, was robbed at, like, while uh, preaching of, like, a million dollars worth of ice? Dude was wearing a million dollars worth of jewelry, and somebody, like, robbed him at, uh, they robbed him at, like, from the pulpit. Oh, I'm sure it was it was probably um, ancient jewelry. It was probably like old church like artifacts. I don't think they were diamond rings, was it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like That's modern exactly day, like diamond. This is not rings. a priest. Yeah, this was like a Baptist minister. Oh, I thought you were I, when I was imagining. I was I was thinking the whole garb, like a bishop or a priest with the in a big Catholic cathedral thing and wearing old like hundreds and hundreds of year old gems on his hands and doing the whole thing and no. a bunch of thugs running in and knocking him over. <laughs> no, no. I, I think we're talking like, um, I think we're talking uh, evangelical preacher and I think we're talking, you know, dudes dressed like a stone cold rock star. I got you. I got uh, you. Know, I got you. Sending out eight, eight fingers of yes, ice. Yes, you know. yes, 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 yes. Probably. I, I shouldn't speculate too much because I, I just sort of glanced at the uh, like the headline in the first couple of lines. I didn't really read the story. It was like the headline was enough for me to just think it was hilarious. Don't surprise um, me. Because again, you know, oh, it, it, it absolutely doesn't surprise <laughs> me, but it doesn't make it any less funny. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Like, because, you know, as Jesus said, address thou out in as much bling as you can. <laughs> That's what they said today. The church, that was the message. So just to piggyback on that, and, and I, I really don't want to get too sidetracked, but today at church, the uh, priest was up there doing his thing. And his message of the day, he actually was using an example of, um, and they quoted the scripture, and then he came up and he goes, you know, back in 1994, the Notorious B.I.G. came out with a song, and his song was called Mo Money no problems and he goes on to start like um talking about the uh, words in the song and he starts like going over lyrics and he's like and if you need a translation that is mo- more money oh my god more problems <laughs> good god that is a that is a uh, a priest who is hip to the lingo of the youth 28 years and ago. And I mean, it was an interesting story, but I didn't want to get sidetracked, but it was interesting you bring that up because it was funny. No, no, that no. I, I, I always, I, I always <laughs> find it hilarious when priests like discover culture from 20 years ago and try and incorporate it in yeah. to like sound really like, cool. This was, it's like, right. my brother in Christ, you are not doing it. <laughs> I'm looking around like, what the well, fuck? <laughs> it's like, um, sorry again to digress. It's like every uh, youth group rap that's like, <laughs> My name's John the Baptist, and I'm here to say, but, you know, paving the way for Jesus in a major way. You know, it's just awful, awful, awful. They haven't like they they just are. They're getting all of their like hip hop clues 
from like the Cosby Show or something. It's bad, bad. Or stuff. Fresh Prince of Bel Air, like the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Let's watch the Fresh yeah, Prince of Bel Air. They haven't, and find they out haven't gotten that far yet. It's so funny. It was really funny. He keeps going into the story today, and he was like, and then you know, it was true. It was mo money, mo problems because he was dead six months later, <laughs> and and then he starts going, and uh, uh, apparently the CEO of a competing. Uh, record label was the one who ordered his death. And I was like, oh my God, is he going to start talking about Suge Knight now? I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> Where is this going? Yeah, that's um, great. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty ridiculous. Um, and and I, I have to say, I, I don't know how I feel about the fact that, uh, that Biggie Smalls has become um, like safe enough to become like a homily. You know what I mean? Like, uh, well, let, let me know when he starts quoting Tupac. Yeah, I was waiting for it today. I was waiting for it, but that's next week. Yeah, I mean, I I doubt that that uh, I doubt that Tupac gets quoted, but that's neither here nor there. Unless he said something like, "According to the the philosopher poet Tupac Shaker, <laughs> he'll call him Tupac Shaker." <laughs> Tupac Shaker. Anyway, um, good stuff. Um, so where where was I? Okay, uh, the streets, right? Okay, money, um, turn a penny. Little L, Efren, and Biggie were both going into the uh, the place there. They both they both got hauled off the ship. Yes, they were astonished. Okay, so well, we just talked about the clergy. Even the clergy are trying to make a buck. The town is so sort of bustling with commercial with con- con- commercialism. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Exactly. Yes. Now, the 18th central, there, central. Yep. the 18th century was Bristol's golden age of both wealth and influence. And a lot of this was derived from the slave trade in, uh, from 1698 when the Royal Africa Company lost its monopoly in the slave trade until the slave trade was abolished in 1807. So just over a hundred years, there were at least 2,114 slave ships that left from Bristol which represented almost 20% of all British voyages. That is, not just slave voyages, all British voyages. Very important to this one city, for sure. Bristol merchants invested somewhere around £150,000 in slaving every year, which is about $10.5 million today. So individual merchants, you know, in just that one, again, just in that one city, we're investing about $10.5 million a a year just in in slaving. So that's... That was their number one industry in that town was slaving or the slave trade. The slave trade, is that, is that what you're saying when you say slaving? That's the slave trade. So that's where you Correct. would go to get new slaves or maybe trade them, trade old no, slaves, that's where trade they would, barter or whatever. They would take goods to Africa to trade and sell in exchange for enslaved people. And then they would take them to the Americas to sell for, you. you know, money and goods. And then they would yep. bring it back to England, sugar and, and tobacco and all that stuff. And there was people that did this route as a business continuously. To Cor- yeah, correct. I mean, continuously is is yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. the, these voyages were long. Uh, the process was long. There were only certain mm-hmm. times of year that you could sail because of things like the Gulf Stream and hurricanes mm-hmm. and everything else. So, you know, uh, so there is a, a kind of a window for travel and all that. We talked last set- time. Go ahead. 
I was gonna say they would probably sit out the beginning. And say we're gonna try and make three trips this year. We're gonna. Oh they no! Would have, it, like, it would one, be like one a, a year. One, one, one a year. year. Okay. Yeah. I got you. Yeah, I you don't you. have. You couldn't get all. You couldn't pull it off more than once a year because, uh, like we talked about last time, and you were incredulous, but like you talked, we talked about last time. Sometimes uh, a slaving vessel could get to the west coast of Africa and be at anchor for one month, month three months, six months, nine months, and a lot of that had to do with the availability of enslaved people, how many people could be captured and caught and all that stuff, but also uh, had to do with the weather. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you missed your window for departure, you had to wait six months until otherwise right. you'd be flying through her right. or you'd be sailing through hurricanes or whatever. So, you know, it's so not this, like, yeah, go ahead. This one trip is magnificently important. There's no room for error because this is your livelihood. If you're a slaver and this is what you're doing as a business. Yeah. It sort has of. to be something that you, you know, you have to have the best goods. You have to make sure you have the best talent as far as, you know, I for slaves, if you want to call it that. I'm sure there was some slaves were worth a lot more than others. Yeah. Obviously, for obvious reasons. Okay. So, of course, sort of, kind of. Um, that's not quite accurate in part because, um, generally speaking, you know, you we're talking about human beings. So, um you know, it's not like uh, it's not like you're dependent on whether the weather has been good for a good harvest or whatever. You know, what I mean, like there sure. are a lot of contingency. Uh, there are a lot of contingencies about whether or not you could even fill a vessel or how long it would take to you know to fill your vessel with people. Yeah, and and which so this is always idea my of like, question, which yeah. is always my biggest question, is you know you'd have to have. Unfortunately, at the time, people were a product. And you have to have a product. So a lot of these areas might have run out of conflict. They may have, or something like that. So I'm sure, like, I'm imagining that certain areas may may run out of conflict, while other areas may may have new conflict, which would provide new slaves and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you also have you know um, enslaved people themselves, the people who are being enslaved or being attacked or whatever are also not um, a passive observer. They right. are, are not passive observers. So they also react to these realities. Yes. Sometimes by yes. moving, sometimes by uh, fortifying, sometimes by engaging in trade with other groups that can get them uh, arms and, and, and uh, protection, you know, sometimes by sort of engaging in like um, diplomacy with groups that might be able to protect them, you know, any number of things to try and, mitigate um the circumstances so so there's a sort of constant negotiated process to to be sure so yep. yeah it's not a it's it's not a trade like anything else but anyway let's um yeah we'll, let's move put on. a pin in that we're gonna Sorry. yeah move on yeah. we're gonna talk a little bit more about some of the arguments against uh the slave trade not slavery okay. per se but the slave trade in, in trade. particular yep. as as this story moves on um we're not going to we're not going to really do much in this story to talk about or even uh, directly kind of show people condemning slavery itself. Um, we, of course, do, but that's not what this story is about. So we're not going to see much in the way of, of condemning actual slavery in the story, a very little bit. But of course not. the yeah, slave trade imagine. will become right. a target, and, and we'll sort of talk about how and why that is. Okay. All right. So anyway, Bristol merchants, you know, this was a big deal in Bristol. Um, whether it was the most important trade for the city, I couldn't say. I think it was. But also because slavery, because the slave trade was so important, it also meant that this was a port uh, that was bringing in a great deal of American goods, sugar and tobacco and other cash crops. Um, 
indigo and rice, as well as bringing in, you know, foodstuffs from the Americas that become really popular in Europe, things like potatoes and tomatoes and peppers, you know, the, and, and maize, corn, you know, these things mm-hmm. that did not grow in Europe that, that come over as a result of trade. So I always get, to, I, I like to think about the fact that tomatoes are an American crop and I imagine Italian food before, you know, before contact with the Americas, right? Like, there are mm-hmm. no tomatoes in, in Italy, like until the Americas. Do you, you know what I mean? Like, think about how crazy that is. They have well, you know pasta. Yeah. Because yeah, of you know what, uh, Marco that, Polo. That, that probably means that Italian food as we know it didn't even exist until the Americas existed. So well, the Italian food itself would have been completely different if we would have had the sure. pasta. Sure. But. Yeah, you never hear about Roman soldiers getting noodles. Right, right. They get They'd bread. Like, What's that tasteless <laughs> garbage over there? They ain't getting any of that. Anyway, right, back to the story. Back to the story. Back to the story. So, sorry, I mean, one of the things, really quick, one of the things that I that I that my students have always struggled to understand is I think about uh, when I explain to them how black pepper, the thing that every kitchen table, every restaurant table is equipped with, salt and pepper, mm-hmm. how impactful the introduction of pepper into European cuisine was, because before pepper, like Europe, basically had like I don't know, marjoram and salt. And they just didn't have any spices. They had no seasoning. So mm-hmm. the very first, I mean, if you can, if you can imagine the very first time that you crunch into a black peppercorn and you're like, Ooh, that's, you know, a little spicy. It's got a little, it's got a little zing. It's got, and we think of it today as like, it's most people, even people who don't like spicy food will like use salt and pepper. Not, not sure. everybody obviously, but it is the most commonplace spice. And like, it didn't exist. Yep. You know, in Europe until really late in the game. So you imagine, and then, you know, something like pasta didn't exist until, again, uh, trade with Asia brought noodles to Italy. So you're like, so for a long time, Italy had noodles, but no tomatoes. So, you know, I imagine they made carbonara. It's it's like watching my favorite you know, and, and I, I, I make a, a delicious homemade Italian meal. I grew up on Italian food. My grandmother brought Italian recipes from Italy. Sure. And it's almost like watching my culture come together and form. Sure. As far as what I ate growing up. It's amazing. Sure. sure. Absolutely. No, food is really important. I mean, it's... Like you say, uh, good. this was introduced in this century. This was introduced in this century. And then by, the ni- by 1986, I could go and... You can and have a Bronx pizza. <laughs> sure. Um, well, have you, do you ever eat, uh, again, we're digressing a lot, but do you, yeah, uh, yeah. have you ever eaten uh, uh, pasta puttanesca? I have not. Are you what is that? With I might have. Pasta? I might have. Describe it to me. Puttanesca is one of, is, is actually one of my uh, favorite sort of red sauces. It's a, it's a very simple red sauce, uh, just tomato, garlic, uh, or, or onion sometimes, and a lot of olives. Uh, obviously, you, know, you can make it any number of ways, but it's olive oil, you know, it's olive oil, you know, garlic or onion, uh, tomato and olives. I mean, those are the, the key components. Capers, I usually find in Putinesca. Well, Putinesca was, has become like, uh, almost, um, that's the wrong word, but almost like a prestige Italian sauce, right? Um, a good Italian restaurant will have puttanesca. Uh, mm-hmm. Just like a good Italian res- restaurant will make a good fradiano. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. A-, a good Italian restaurant doesn't necessarily have a great bolognese, but they definitely have a good marinara. Yeah. They-, they usually have a good puttanesca, a good yep. fradiano. 
the uh, Bolognese is like the the nod to, uh, for lack of better terms, for like the the Anglo whites, you know, for mm-hmm. the waspy crowd. Like, oh, give them give them the most boring ass tomato sauce, <laughs> and we'll just put some ground beef that's completely unseasoned in it. Yeah, and they'll be thrilled. Like that's the yeah, best yeah, thing yeah. they because they can't handle our meatballs, so they'll just have a Bolognese because they They're can't. Minigons. My grandmother calls them minigons. Right. Exactly. So. Putinesca, though, is one of my favorite, uh, has one of my favorite backstories because it's uh, a very uh, pungent smelling sauce because of the, the lots of garlic and or onions and lots of olives. So it has a real strong smell and it has a pretty strong flavor and often capers or whatever. But the sauce goes back to the whorehouses of Italy. It's called, and you should know from the name, Putinesca, right? It's, it's, it was the sauce. So they would make it in the whorehouses because it was so pungent. The smell would sort of waft out into the streets. And so if you were, you know, you could identify there, done the that. prostitutes in it. Huh? Been there, done that. Mm-hmm. So you, you could identify the prostitutes from the smell of sauce, mm-hmm. you know, sort of wafting out on the street. Um, but again, it's, it's also all like poor people ingredients, you know, just like just basic onions, tomatoes, olives, you know, stuff that's everywhere in Italy, capers, you know, stuff that you just like don't cost very much to make. So you have this very simple sauce that's very, very pungent, that masks probably a lot of the smells within the house. Um, you, because again, you know, in a, in a brothel, uh, the, in a brothel, it's, it's very likely to, you know, not necessarily be the best smelling place in the world. <laughs> and so, but if you're, you know, you could kind of fill the, fill the in with the smell of, of, of sauce cooking. Yes. Uh, so that, you know, so you didn't walk in and immediately think, Oh yeah, everybody's in here fucking. <laughs> it's you know a comfort a comfort to the weary traveler. Yes. <laughs> but you should try Putinesca because it's you know it's, it's literally you know I like that. My, well, one of one of our sponsors, I will tell you, one of our sponsors, um, uh, is Victoria. Is a brothel? Is it? Well, no, not yet. I'm trying that one. I'm uh, I've got a couple in line, but but the best if you're looking for a good vodka sauce, okay, the best out there at a store that you can go to the grocery store and buy. That you have to make it home. The best is um, Al- uh, Alexandra's vodka sauce. Okay, I've not. I don't think I've ever seen that here. It's the absolute best. There's going to be the top notch ones are Rayos. Rayos is the top, but not for vodka sauce. Everything else, it's great. Uh, but there's a whole other way you cook noodles and everything. So we'll get into it. Another. This is a, this is an episode for the future where you uh, you do, do where you read episodes. me a story about Italian food. There you go. Enough food talk. But one more thing, because this is okay, very important. Okay, okay. It's very important. When okay. making the pasta, right? When you're making the pasta itself, yes, you have to put a little bit of olive oil in the in the water when you're boiling it. That's that's key, right? So you boil it, you strain the pasta, then you have to put the pasta back into the bowl, put it over heat, and then you have to take a few ladles of the sauce and you pour it over the pasta, and you mix okay. it while it's over high heat. You mix it with a few ladles of the sauce, so the sauce coats the pasta. Just coats it, sure, and then you remove okay. from the heat. Then you remove from the heat, and then the pasta. First of all, won't never stick, but the flavor gets into the pasta, and then you you scoop it onto a bowl, and then you add the sauce on top of it. Sure, that's very right. very important. On that note, I'm going to grab one more beer. Go for it. So, slaving was critical to Bristol, as one writer put it: "Not a brick in the city." But what is cemented by the blood of a slave? It's like the Irish and the Italians. 
Okay. I, see, I don't really quite understand that, but all right. They were used to build the cities of Boston. and. Oh, 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 I see. Yeah, I got you. I got you. I got you. Sure. Okay. So despite the importance of the slave trade to Bristol's economy, the slave trading community was actually a pretty tight knit and relatively small group. Because slaving ventures were extremely expensive, merchants would typically form kind of temporary partnerships of like two, somewhere between two and 10 people in order to divide the expenses and then the profits. Bristol traders also developed close relationships with the Ethic traders of Old Calabar. Because for those traders that traded in Old Calabar, you had to have these personal relationships in order to actually accomplish anything. Because of the familial canoe house structure of the trade that was there, uh, personal connections between Ethic and Bristol traders and among the Bristol traders themselves helped forge a kind of unlikely network that would ultimately help the Robin Johns to escape their predicament. So after two weeks aboard the Brickdale, little Ephraim wrote to a man named Thomas Jones, who was one of Bristol's wealthiest traders and the man to whom uh, Grandy King George had written immediately following the Robin Johns abduction. So if you remember, I just sort of glossed over it. Grandy King George, as soon as the, the massacre of 1767 occurred, he fired off a letter to a couple of Bristol traders. One of them was Thomas Jones, because he knew Jones personally from trading with him for a long time. Uh, Jones and his partner controlled about 40% of the tonnage of vessels that were bound for Africa from Bristol in the late 1700s. So that is not to say that he controlled 40% of, of all the ships, but 40% of the total tonnage of those vessels, right? So he had big ships and he had a lot of them. He got paid on the tonnage. Yeah. So he owned 40%. He and his partner controlled 40%. Mm-hmm. This is a big fish. Uh, little Ephraim and Ancona Robin had met Jones during two of his personal slaving voyages in both 1760 and 1763. The fact that they were able to write to Thomas Jones uh, was itself evidence that the Robin Johns had won over some of the crewmen aboard the Brickdale with their story. Because they somehow managed to get writing materials. They had their letters either mailed or hand-delivered to Jones, right? So they had to have some sort of connections in order for that to happen. Uh Uh, nevertheless, Jones did not respond to their letter. So little Ephraim wrote a second letter. And for a second time, Jones remained silent. And the Brickdale was now set to leave for Virginia. The Robin Johns were devastated that Jones had never responded. But as little Ephraim wrote, quote, the Lord was good and stayed the wind, which prevented our sailing. Then I write again to Mr. Jones, which moved him to pity, end quote. So Like the weather plays a part. They manage to stay in Bristol a little bit longer because there's bad weather. So they fire off a third letter. Mm -hmm. Thomas Jones uh, responds after that third letter, he decides to get involved by reaching out to a fellow trader named Ambrose Lace. Lace, you might remember, was one of the captains that was involved in the massacre of 1767 when the Robin Johns were first captured. And I should say, Jones does not know anything about the massacre of 1767. No one does because it was illegal. Mm -hmm. Jones wanted Lace to sign an affidavit confirming the identities of the Robin Johns. But Lace wrote back claiming that he did not believe that they were who they said they were. Now, Ambrose Lace knew the Robin John family well. You might remember that he had kidnapped Grandy King George's son, brought him back to England and educated him. And then he sent him back to Old Calabar after a couple of years Mm -hmm. in order to become a slaver in his own right. He did that 
in hopes of getting favorable deals from him once he sent him back. So like Lace was involved and also kidnapped the king's son, right? So like he absolutely knows who the Robin Johns are. Okay. <laughs> okay. Anyway, that was a strategy, kidnapping him and educating him and sending him back. It was a strategy that worked. Uh, he did, in fact, have a long relationship with Grandy King George's son, and he got good deals from him as a result. But, you see, Lace wasn't being honest when he claimed not to know Ancona and Little, uh, Little Ephraim. Their presence in Bristol, and especially Thomas Jones's attempts to free them, created a potential problem for Ambrose Lace. You see... The massacre of 1767 was, as I said, completely illegal. Mm-hmm. British law forbid captains and crews from engaging in any violence against the African people they traded with. So through his active and violent participation in the massacre, Lace could face legal consequences if the truth ever became known. Mm-hmm. So it should be no surprise then that Ambrose Lace was, shall we say, less than helpful. <laughs> Uh, he, he cast doubt on the men's story and even encouraged Jones to just send someone to Old Town to try and purchase the Robin Johns right. and gain legal title over them, which is a weird thing to do yep. when you say they're not who they say they are, right? Like, yep. you should just send somebody to buy their buy title for those guys. Just, But, of course, you know, I mean, I think Ambrose Lace is probably thinking, go trade with the uh, the new town or Duke town sure. you know, traders, yeah. they'll sell you title to these guys because they don't want them back either. Thomas Jones, however, when he received a reply from Ambrose Lace, he had already contacted William Floyd, who had been the chief mate aboard yet another one of the ships that was involved in that massacre. Floyd provided an extremely detailed and a thoroughly damning review of the massacre and specifically Ambrose Lace's role in it. Uh, and he yes. uh, submitted all this in a signed affidavit. So Jones presented the Robin Johns case to the chief justice, sure, a guy named Lord Mansfield. And after reviewing this, Mansfield issued a writ of habeas corpus in order to release the men from captivity. Uh, so they were finally freed from the Brickdale. Okay. So things are looking up for the Robin Johns. Okay. Now, Lord Mansfield is an interesting guy. He had, at this time, just ruled on a groundbreaking case called the Somerset case in 1772. Uh-huh. This, uh, the Robin John story is taking place um, in like 1773. Uh-huh. You know, so it's very fresh in everybody's mind. Now, the Somerset case involved James Somerset, okay. who was an enslaved man uh, brought to England from Jamaica. In England, he escaped his master <laughs> and was able to hide out for a little bit before he was recaptured. He was then imprisoned on a ship bound for Jamaica to be sold to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, the, his his quote-unquote owner was like, this is too much hassle for me. I'm going to get rid of this guy. Okay. Somerset had made friends in England, and his friends brought the case before Lord Mansfield. And Mansfield ruled that this guy, James Somerset, could not be taken out of the country against his will. Now, the British press, uh, and the American press, it should be noted, reported that Mansfield had uh, ended slavery in the British Isles with this ruling. Mm-hmm. But that's not what he did, right? The ruling was actually really narrow. Right. He actually relied on this uh, 17th century law that forbid the forced deportation of any subjects or residents of the kingdom. So... Somerset basically looked at this law and he said, I mean, I'm sorry, Mansfield looked at this law and he said, look, a person who lives here is not able to be removed from the British Isles against their will. Somerset lives here now. It's like the squatter rule. It doesn't matter that he's enslaved. Once he's here and resident, because he escaped, so he lived on his own for a while, 
Right. Because of that, he can't be sent back to Jamaica against his will. Correct. So they, again, it's a very narrow case. Like this wouldn't be, you know, if somebody had uh, a slave in England um, and they kept their slave in England, they this wouldn't affect them in any way. It would only affect them if they tried to take them elsewhere and they didn't want to go. Right. Because Somerset's master lived in Jamaica, Somerset had to be free. Correct. Because he couldn't be compulsively deported. So, like, again, Mansfield basically argued that if his owner decided to live in England, that would be fine. He could keep Somerset as a slave. But because his residence is in Jamaica, there's no way to force Somerset back with him. So it was probably at least in part of, uh, in part due to this precedent that Mansfield issued the writ for the Robin John's release, right? Yeah. It's a similar situation. Their uh, supposed owner lives in Virginia and doesn't live in England. So like they can't be forcibly deported. I mean, that's, it's, it's really very clearly in the, in the, you know, this writ of habeas corpus. Mm-hmm. Anyway, once they received the writ, the Robin John's left the Brickdale and there was a carriage waiting for them. They, uh, they boarded the carriage and they were taken about five miles to the guy that owned the Brickdale, Henry Lippincott's residence. They got out of the carriage, and they were immediately arrested. Oh. They were sent first to a, quote, lockup house, and afterwards to the House of Correction, end quote. It was another, you know, obviously unexpected twist for the Robin Johns. Every time they're almost free, they're jailed again. <laughs> These poor guys, right? Unbelievable. So Terrence O'Neill, this is why they were arrested. Terrence O'Neill, the captain of the Greyhound, who had brought them from Virginia, right? The one who had helped them escape, mm-hmm. told them that he would take them, get them back to Old Calabar. He had the Robin Johns arrested for failing to pay their passage from Virginia to England. Oh, what a cheap prick. Well, it's an obviously fraudulent charge. Like there was obviously, like he knew, like he was telling them, if you can escape, I'll get you back to, to Africa. But basically this was like one last ploy to try and profit off of them. Because again, Remember, O'Neill had no intention of freeing them. He wanted to bring them back to England and then send them on another ship to Virginia in the hopes they would be sold somewhere other than where their former owner was. Right. Because their former owner had died, remember? So anyway, so like that, I mean, it was obviously he thought if he took them away and then sent them back, like nobody would know exactly who they were. He could kind of get away with them and right. some money. So this was obviously, you know, fraud. From the House of Correction, right, from jail, little Ephraim again took matters into his own very skilled hands. He uh, demonstrated a, a remarkable understanding of the legal English legal system mm-hmm. and wrote to the Chief Justice. Mm-hmm. He wrote to the Chief Justice, Lord Mansfield, to again explain the situation and to beg for relief and justice, as the Robin Johns understood those two words. Now, Little Ephraim's letter to Lord Mansfield covered a lot of legal ground. Not only did Little Ephraim rely on Similar grounds for freedom, as was the basis in the Somerset case. That is, we live here now. We can't be forced to be, you know, against our will taken somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So they, he relied on that in the letter, but also he went further. He argued that their very enslavement had been illegal. Now, hmm. this is a, a pretty, like a complicated legal argument to argue that their specific enslavement was an illegal action. So I'm going to quote a long passage from little Ephraim Robin John's affidavit that he wrote to the chief justice. Okay. I want you to think about how, okay. how amazing this is that you've got this enslaved guy. Right. Who, who wrote this thing, right? He writes this whole thing out. It's pretty remarkable. No question. I said early on, this is also a very much a story of class. Okay. Yep. Yep. Quote, when we first went aboard Captain Bevan's ship, we were free people and in no ways subject 
to the people of Newtown, nor had they any right of power over us, nor were we conquered in fight or battle, nor taken prisoners by them, nor had they any right to sell us. We had not done anything to forfeit our liberty, or had the people of Newtown any right or power over us, nor had the English captains any right to assist the people of Newtown. There was no war between the people of Newtown and the people of Old Town, only a quarrel or a dispute about trade, end quote. So his reasoning makes sense here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. The ethic always maintained at least the pretense of warfare when they did their slave raids. Yes. Like they at, le- at the very least pretended they were at war with the people they captured. Yep. They only attacked and captured people from among their traditional enemies. So to the Robin Johns, the massacre of 1767 was in no meaningful way a war. I mean, certainly not as any of the ethic would have actually understood it. Correct. It was like a trade dispute gone horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. There's another complication in here as well. Like uh, if if they had been legally captured and purchased in Old Calabar, and I want to note here that, that in reality, after they'd been captured and everything else, the English captains met with some of the Old Calabar traders and they were trying to figure out what to do with both the Robin Johns and some of the other people, the other ethic traders from Old Town who were captured. So they paid a few coppers. They decided to pay a few copper coins, which was well below the market value as a kind of uh, what they would call an ex post facto uh, cover for their actions. They, sure. they they did this basically in case somehow word got back to England, they could say, no, 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 sure. we paid for these people. But they paid well below market value. They paid a few pennies, indicating that they clearly understood that they were violating the law in doing this, right? And and this also goes back to what I'd asked you before about the overall justification of the trade itself. Sure. And saying that these are prisoners. That is. And if they're and if they're prisoners, this is part of their sentence that they're now enslaved. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So these aren't just innocent people that are just scooped up and then thrown into slavery. These are prisoners that we captured. These are bad people. From a perspective. That are now Correct. set. Right. From that perspective, yes. I mean, So what these guys are saying is, look, we are not that. Right. We are just innocent people that were scooped up. So this is against the moral justification that you guys put out there. Right. Hence, we should be released as free men. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So that was – I had always wondered about that because – I'd always wondered what is the are there groups in this day and age that are saying this is ethically wrong? But when I'm thinking about that today, we drive down the highway and we see chain gangs on the side of the road and we think in our mind they're prisoners. Sure. Right? They're not slaves. Although they're in chains, they're picking trash up off the side of the road instead of cotton in the field, whatever you want to call it. They're taking back and putting cells. You know, they're given three meals a day and they're given shelter, but they're not exactly free men. So there's not much of it. Granted, they're not whipped necessarily. It's not the same, but they are enslaved, right? right? They are encaptured. And and back then, to justify this is the same exact thing that we do today when we're driving down the highway. That is um, That is a surprisingly salient point. That you have made. Uh, because, yeah, the, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, uh, it outlaws slavery and it says, except for prisoners. So, yes, we continue to have a system of legal slavery for people who are imprisoned. And yep. uh, I would argue that there's no moral justification for that personally. 
But that's a whole other issue that we do not have time to, to get into here because that would be, you know, its own four part episode. But like, sure. Yes. Um, absolutely. That is, there, there is, there is a, a legal justification for slavery among the people who are doing the enslaving. Now, as with most things, uh, it is, you know, crime, what defines crime, like you said, these are bad guys. Well, according to a certain perspective. Sure. Uh, the perspective of people who want to sell them for profit. They were from the losing side, uh, but they're not. They were from the losing side. Right. Correct. Correct. Which, uh, you know, uh, I think, uh, I think a, a stronger argument could certainly be made that that doesn't justify enslavement. Mm-mm. But. Not at all. Um, but, uh, but, uh, but from a legal standpoint at this time, from the people who are at this moment in our story negotiating the law, yeah, there's a, a legal rationale for all of this that the Robin Johns fall outside of. Gotcha. So here's the thing. Even if they had been legally captured and sold, even if it was a declared war, even if uh, an argument could be made that the that Old Town was at war with Newtown or Duke Town, as the case may be, even if that were the case, it doesn't matter because... The person that had legal title to these men under that those circumstances would have been the doctor in Dominica where they were first sold. Because remember, they ran away. They weren't sold. The doctor didn't sell them or transfer mm-hmm. title in any way. Mm-hmm. They fled. And then because they thought they were going to go back to Africa. Right. But instead, they were kidnapped and sold in Virginia. So even if even if it had been a war, even if their capture and enslavement had been quote unquote legal. They most certainly had been sold illegally in Virginia. So any claim to these men from Virginia was itself fraudulent. So the Robin Johns case put up three significant challenges uh, before Lord Mansfield. Mansfield personally had repeatedly shown a really pretty strong reluctance to make any sweeping determinations about the legality of slavery in England. It was not something he wanted to do. And he was sort of equally perplexed uh, from his own writings about how specifically to handle the Robin Johns case that was now before him. Like, this was a guy who did not want to be the guy that that said slavery was illegal. Right. Like, he didn't want to be that guy. Exactly. <laughs> even as the, the, even as like the chief justice, you know, that, that was just not something he wanted to do. But the, the bottom line is this. Mansfield deliberated, and as he deliberated, he was very pleased to find out that the parties that were involved uh, had reached a surprise resolution. Oh, yeah. So he didn't have to rule on the case, which I'm sure he was thrilled about. Mm-hmm. You know, because especially the Robin Johns case, because there were these three specific challenges to slavery or the slave trade, it, it like it really would have complicated things for Mansfield, right? Because like <laughs> you know, I mean, like no matter how he ruled on this. He was going to be. He was going to sort of end up making a sweeping judgment, like it or not, because mm-hmm. their case was so specific, and they'd been illegally sold in Virginia, they'd been illegally kidnapped, and didn't want to be forcibly removed from the the country. So, like, it just it it could have been a a political mess for him that he wanted to avoid. Okay, mm-hmm. but he didn't have to because, in a stunning twist of all people, Captain Bevins, uh, the guy who had actually kidnapped them, if you remember, I'm sure, I'm not sure if you do, but like Captain Bevins came forward. He paid 120 pounds to the people who were, um, representing their former owner in Virginia who had come forward to make a claim. So he paid them 120 pounds. Uh, and then Captain O'Neill dropped his rather transparent, fraudulent claim. <laughs> and, 
And so everything was resolved. The The details of the arrangement were submitted to the court. So this wasn't just like um, something that they agreed to and it was dropped. Mm-hmm. We actually, the documents exist where the details of the arrangement were submitted and Mansfield or at least his office had to approve it. And they did. Now, it's not really clear why, of all people, this Captain Bivens came out of the woodwork to, like, pay after six years, you know. So there's a lot of speculation. Like, mm-hmm. maybe Mansfield specifically pressured him behind the scenes. I mean, obviously, the chief justice of the uh, of the king's court would have a lot of weight to put pressure on a person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it was that. Maybe it was the close-knit uh, community of slavers in Bristol who, you know, didn't want to get tangled in the the rest of the massacre of 1767 and the illegality of it. So, you know, guys like Ambrose Lace maybe got involved. Who knows? Um, they certainly don't want those things, the, the details of the massacre, revealed in open court because they would all be in violation of the law and that would present its own problems, obviously. Mm-hmm. But regardless of how, of how it happened, finally, after more than six years, the Robin Johns were once again free men. When they were released from prison, little Ephraim and Ancona Robin asked Thomas Jones for religious instruction. And they actually had a specific instructor in mind, Charles Wesley. Now, Charles, along with his brother, John Wesley, were the founders of Methodism, really dates the story a bit. This is when Methodism was first founded. You know mm-hmm. I mean? like we're, we're just in the aftermath of that, um, 30 years or so after. Now, Charles was probably the most famous, what they call a hymnodist of the time. It is a guy that writes hymns. Uh, among his more than 6,000 hymns that he published, most of them have been kind of lost to time or, you know, we don't use anymore. But among the ones that we still use are Hark, the Herald Angels Sing. Yes. And yeah. and there's another one you probably know as a church guy. Christ the Lord is risen today. Yeah. You know, Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. That one. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. Now, the Robin John's interest in Christianity seems to have been genuine, but there is evidence that enslaved people's interest in the faith was, to say the least, complex. Uh-huh. There had existed a longstanding belief in Christianity, or that Christianity and slavery were incompatible for at least several centuries. Much like uh, the belief that Christians couldn't charge interest on loans to other Christians. Sure. Because the Bible prohibits usury. Uh-huh. And of course, Jesus admonished everyone to give someone your cloak in addition to your coat if someone asks for the latter, right? Like sure. Jesus, you know, is saying you don't charge interest, right? If somebody asks to borrow a hundred bucks, you give them a hundred and fifty and and you write it off as the Christian thing to do. Right. Right. So just like this, with this long accepted tenet of Christianity, the not loaning money to people for interest, people found ways to legally justify violating that Christian practice by enshrining the violations in law once capitalism demanded it. Okay. The, (laughs) it's true. I mean, I'm sorry. (laughs) Obviously capitalism uh, doesn't function without interest bearing loans. Correct. Okay. So, we can write off Christianity as soon as capitalism, uh, you, you know, requires a new source of income, a new source of debt income. Um, the deep-seated doubt about the compatibility of slavery and Christianity, though, is evidenced by legislation in the British Americas that sort of continuously address the question of how compatible slavery and Christianity is from the earliest 17th century to as late as 1781. Uh, people were still writing laws about this. Uh-huh. 
So there was actually so there's actually some evidence that uh, some enslaved Africans and indigenous people as well in the Americas were able to successfully petition for freedom on the basis of their baptism in places like Virginia. And this happened as late as uh, 1667. In 1729, uh, there was a discovered potential slave rebellion or uh, a slave rebellion conspiracy, I guess, that was inspired by a belief among converts, Christian converts, Uh that, quote, the king designed all Christians would be made free, end quote. So this whole slave rebellion was based on the idea that the king had declared that Christians would be made free. These enslaved people had been baptized and therefore become Christians and had not been freed. So there was this whole rebellion being plotted saying like, it's the slave owners who are violating the laws of the king. Sure. And so they planned on rising up in order to be good citizens, which is pretty interesting too. That's awesome. It was discovered and put down and executed. But that's <laughs> in a horrible way, I'm sure. Sorry to be the uh, the, the doomer every time, but yeah, um, yeah, the, the good guys lost. <laughs> anyway, it it seems uh, pretty unlikely though that the Robin Johns were trying to like build a case for their freedom with religious conversion, right? Because they already had pretty strong grounds for freedom, but they might have considered it like as an insurance policy against reenslavement. Or frankly, they might have thought about converting to Christianity as a way to like add a fourth component to their to their argument about the illegality of their slave their enslavement. Right. So but it's hard to know what their motivations were. It is also possible that the Robin John's interest in Christianity was just a kind of natural extension of the preference for English material goods and customs among the Ethic. Like you'll recall the Ethic leader of Old Town called himself Grandy King George. Yes. At the time that the King of England was King George. King George. He's like the acting boss, is what we would call him. Exactly. Grandy, meaning, mm-hmm. you know, like the Grand King George. You might also remember how ethnic elites would order and wear English clothing. They used English wash basins. They even used English pewter piss pots. You know what I mean? Like they adopted lots of English cultural yes. material into their society. They adopted names like Prince and obviously Grandy King George. But in Old Calabar, uh, indigenous religion went unchallenged by the English. So, like, the English never came trying to bring Christianity. Mm-hmm. Surely, this is at least due uh, partly to the fact that sailors were notoriously irreligious people. Sure. And they would have been unlikely to proselytize, you know, in Africa. There, There's a reason that we have an expression, he curses like a sailor, not like... <laughs> He curses like a lawyer. You know what I mean? Like both are true, but there's a reason that 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 expression exists. However, in England, Africans' traditional religious beliefs would have marked the Robin Johns uh, with a kind of mark of inferiority, right? Like where Christianity was the dominant religion, their indigenous beliefs and practices would have marked them out as very different and frankly would have marked them out as inferior, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Around the time that the Robin Johns were in Bristol, the uh, the racist Jamaican planter, uh, Edward Long, wrote a history of Jamaica, and he wrote about African people specifically as, quote, brutish, ignorant, idle, crafty, treacherous, bloody, thievish, mistrustful, and superstitious people, end quote. By contrast, in England, the Robin Johns were described as, quote, Perfectly well-bred, all their motions were easy, proper, and graceful. Notwithstanding their color, there was something agreeable in their countenance. Ancana 
Now, I was going to say, that description used in the slave trade, they would have been used, they would have dictated what they had been used for, meaning they would have been more like the servants in the house. No, uh, the, honestly, they're, other than the part where they say notwithstanding their color, they're mm-hmm. describing English gentlemen. Yeah. No, I, I think they were gentlemen. They were just of color. So, so no. Right? So what they're saying is, hold on. If you, Go for it. If you let me get to the end of the sentence, you'll see what, exactly what they think. So real quick. So um, there was something agreeable in their countenance. And Kana was all sweetness. Ephraim was all a prince. No one would have conceived that he knew what slavery even meant, end quote. So like the English described them as clearly men who did not deserve to be enslaved. Right. So like, so, so you're saying like they would have been, they, they, this describes them as people who would have been used as house servants or something, you know, doing. Correct. So if, if they would have been. As like front, front face, front facing employees, as it were, yes. right? Front of the house. Front of the house. Like the best looking, you know, you want your, your best looking hostess out there to welcome people in or whatever, whatever, you know, bullshit. Right. Or the ones that would have been as close to you, meaning, you know, um, someone in the house that would understand your, um, culture. Right. Sure. So, if you were a gentleman sure. from the other side and just happened to be captured in a conflict, put in a, put as a prison, taken as a prisoner, sold off into slavery, and you happen to be a gentleman, it's they're not going to put you in a field because you're probably not going to fit in. They're going to put you in the house as a servant, servant dinner. I mean, servant tea. Sure, that kind that, of thing. That makes sense, except it doesn't actually work that way all the time. But yes, I mean, the again, the Robin Johns are extraordinarily lucky. Um, but I don't know. There are some pretty smart, refined people who end up doing field labor. Oh, sure. Um, sure. I'm not doubting you know, that at all. Yeah. I mean, so, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I, yes, that's certainly how it looks on the surface. Um, there's no question about that. However, the way the English describe them should really be understood as they are describing members of the, and when I say the English, we're talking about, I would imagine upper class. The yeah, the, well, the middle class, class upper not the upper class, class. The, the middle class, the, the bourgeois. bourgeois. This is the this is the the bourgeois uh, Methodist community okay. that um, the Robin Johns will find themselves in. We're about to talk about how they end up in those communities, but like it's that bourgeois class that is describing them as like they still have to be a little bit racist because you know that's who they are. that's sure, who they are. Sure, but like but they're yeah. like these guys are just graceful and proper. They're they're just. Kind of you know, like they move with sophistication my, and ease, like my great grandparents. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, like my like not 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 hateful, no. not hateful. They didn't have anything against them, but they they sure. they just didn't know other cultures. So they were like, my I remember my grandfather said when he was in Pittsburgh was the first time that he saw a black person. He was probably in his teens and got along. I mean, he wasn't a, a didn't mean anything to him, but he just said that to me. He was like, you know, that was the first time I ever saw anyone else. That looked it's like the me. it's the uh, <laughs> which is amazing. There's there's a kind of a, a difference between the overt racist and the accidental racist. Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. Anyway, all right. So back to the story. Back to the story. So the point being that these people in England who encountered the Robin Johns recognize them as kind of you know bougie, right? They recognize them as men of sophistication and class. Mm-hmm. Um, the the idea that no one would have conceived that. He, meaning Ephraim, even knew what slavery meant. I mean, that's a real telling statement, right? Like, for these people, it's so obvious that they shouldn't be enslaved. Now, that doesn't mean that they think, hey, he sure would make a good partner for my daughter or whatever. Sure, sure. So, so you know, we, you know, so we got to contextualize these things, right? They still have to throw in there that, like, well, notwithstanding their color, which is, of course, <laughs> terrible. 
if it weren't for that, <laughs> these guys are great, right? Like they right, 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 right. But anyway, by defying the stereotypes that had been espoused by guys like Edward Long and others, the Robin Johns were able to win acceptance and inspire confidence among England's Methodists. So perhaps their conversion was part of a larger effort to demonstrate their equality with the upper rungs of the English middle class, right? So most people don't convert just on purely religious, for purely religious reasons, right? Conversion is often a complex thing that has a lot of uh, external social factor. It's hard to know why the Robin Johns converted because we're not in their head. Mm-hmm. There are reasons that make sense other than just some sort of spiritual awakening. Okay. That's all my what I'm saying. I got you. Regardless of those reasons, Ancona and Little Ephraim began meeting and studying regularly mm-hmm. with Charles Wesley. And according to Little F, he felt, quote, or he, quote, felt better and better and found good for my heart. That's always and, what happens. Charles introduced them into Bristol's Methodist community, and they took every opportunity to meet with and hear John Wesley preach. And Kona wrote to Charles, quote, We had the pleasure of seeing your brother. He preached at the room both morning and evening and drank tea at Mrs. Johnson with us, end quote. Hmm. They visited, studied, and prayed with as many of Bristol's Methodists, uh, with many of Myth- Bristol's Methodists, even lodging with some of them, particularly Miss Elizabeth Johnson, a member of the Wesley's innermost circle in Bristol. Charles called her, quote, a rara avis in terrace, or end quote, or a bird rarely ever seen on earth. Uh Although we can understand why the Robin Johns might have sought out Methodists in Bristol, we have not addressed why those Methodists warmly accepted the Robin John into their companies. We need to do that uh, to understand what's going on. But before we do... I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up here. I want to thank everybody for listening and ask you to please come back for the conclusion of our story about the Robin Johns and their epic quest to get back home to Old Calabar after being kidnapped and enslaved. Uh, Thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you for the final episode very, very soon. Thanks so much. 